April the 11th, 1518. Martin Luther had just left his home in Wittenberg, Germany, with a fellow Augustinian monk by the name of Lenhard Beer. They together were going to make a 10-day journey over 340 miles with some other monks to make their way to the beautiful town of Heidelberg on the brooks of the glorious Rhine River. They were traveling to Heidelberg for a regularly scheduled meeting of the Augustinian order. April the 26th, 1518, the Augustinian order of which Luther was a part met there in Heidelberg, and Luther was to present a series of theses that he had prepared. Now, the actual presenter was going to be his co-Augustinian beer, but Luther was the author. Luther was no stranger to debate, and this was not his first presentation of what would become controversial points of debate. One might remember September of 1517, and he had presented 97 theses at that particular meeting, and these were theses against scholastic theology. Luther wasn't against scholasticism as a whole, but he was very opposed to much of the scholastic thinking that he had been taught in his medieval school. Or maybe his more well-known 95 theses. You know what happened to those who were, which were nailed to the castle church door there in Wittenberg in October of 1517, just a month after the 97 theses. But the theses that he presented in Heidelberg are less well-known, but perhaps a little even more controversial. And in the words of Carl Truman, they get us to the very heart of Luther's theology. There were 28 theological treaties and 12 philosophical theses, not treaties, but theses. It's the theological theses that I want us to focus on today. Now, clearly, we don't have time to go through 28 theses, and you're all relieved at the moment. My goodness, I don't have time for 28 things. Well, <clears throat> I do want to give you some sample tasting of what they were about. I think it will help you understand why Truman would say they get us to the very heart of Luther's theology he opens these theses by speaking about the law of God, by speaking about man's own works, by speaking about people's pursuit of a self-righteousness that cannot in any way be salvific. Our works, he writes, are in no way meritorious. He elaborates in some of these theses on his views on the bondage of the will, you might recall that Luther was the one that wrote his book on the bondage of the will in response to Erasmus's views on the will, and they were not in accord with one another. Luther, regarding the bondage of the will, believed that after the fall, man's will is incapable of anything but sin, and the sin that men engaged in with the exercise of their will were mortal sins. Man cannot obtain grace by doing what is in him. And if you know much about medieval theology or perhaps have heard of some of these things, that phrase, do what is in you or do what is in him, was a particular phrase in medieval theology that the scholastics taught that man could respond to God's universal grace, the grace that is given to all men in the universal call of the gospel and in responding to that universal grace given to men, their active response, though it wasn't truly meritorious and truly a wonderful thing that they did that was deserving of salvation in and of itself, it would seem, according to Richard Muller, that it was considered by God as a minimal good. And to this act, God would then respond 
And because man in brief did the best that he could, God would then save him. We might rephrase that statement of doing what is in you with the contemporary bumper sticker, God helps those who help themselves. Or at least, God helps those who help themselves with his help. To this, Luther says categorically, no. Truman has written kind of a a brief biographical look at Luther on the Christian life, and here is the the comment that, that Truman says. He says, this thesis is a fearsome attack on the theology that Luther learned from his medieval masters. The language used is clearly associated with the covenant theology of a man by the name of Gabriel Beale. And the conclusion that Luther draws could scarcely be more offensive. Such theology involves a compounding of humanity's sinful state. There is no ground for compromise or for agreeing to differ at this point. Luther, at this point, has made his position very clear, and he allows himself no escape from the confrontation. He then proceeds to reject a potential false inference from this by stating that such a manner of speaking does not lead to despair, but actually paves the way for the abject humility that is the precondition for receiving the grace of Christ. Let me just read to you a couple of these theses to help kind of elaborate what Truman is saying here. The medievals were trying to say that God is going to give you this kind of universal grace, and if you'll respond rightly, God will come along and and he'll like add grace to that to make up for what's lacking, and this will initiate this process of salvation. Luther says, no, all man can do in his fallen state, all man can do in his sin, is simply add more sin to sin by trying to do what is in him, because what is in him is sin. But this should not lead to despair. Rather, it should lead to Christ. Listen to what he says in Thesis 17. Nor does speaking in this manner give us cause for despair, but for arousing the desire to humble oneself and seek the grace of Christ. Telling someone they can actually do nothing to save themselves or make themselves savable Yes, it leads them to despair, but it leads them to despair of themselves. So they might seek for help in another. He goes on in Thesis 18 and says this, It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. It is at this point that Luther gets to the heart of his dispute And having covered 18 different theses, Truman summarizes it this way. He says that Luther has, number one, he has radicalized sin such that it is equivalent to being morally dead before God as revealed to us by the holy law of God. The law lays us bare. Second, he says that Luther has shown that the will is entirely impotent for salvation. I, I can't contribute anything to my salvation. Third, he writes here, the rejection of these basic truths is a moral issue that itself involves the compounding of sin and guilt before God. Well, with this in mind, Luther turns to his three key theses of the 28. It is 19. 20 and 21 that are, I think, probably the the turning point for the whole of this particular disputation. And you you can look these up online. You can probably find a copy. Maybe you have the book in your library. You can you can read it. But in these three, 19, 20, and 21, he draws a distinction between two theologians. You might think, theologians? You mean theologies? No, I mean theologians. He refers to them as two different theologians. Theologian one is a theologian of glory. And theologian two is a theologian of the cross. Now, the theologian of 
glory, Luther says doesn't even deserve the name theologian, but he gives him the name anyway. He says in Thesis 19, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. This theologian, we might say, walks by sight and not by faith. He reasons from the creature to the creator. He starts with what he sees in the world and thinking these things are clearly perceptible and reasons this must be the way it is with God. This theologian is trying to reason how man can be right before God. What kind of man must man be in order for God to be pleased with him? The theologian of the cross, though, takes a different approach. He measures things with a dependence upon God himself. In other words, he he seeks to understand how God has revealed himself, or we might say where God has most clearly revealed himself, and that for Luther is in the suffering and the cross of Christ. He says it this way, thesis number 20. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. Or he sums it up in Thesis 21 and says this way, A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. Having started at the wrong point, starting with the creature, and then reasoning to God, the theologian of glory is off. The theologian of the cross, though, starts with Christ and lets God reveal himself fully in Christ. And Luther says this, a theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. Now, I, I encourage you to try to stick with me here. This is, a, for me anyway, it was a difficult thing to kind of work through. And it's, it's language that we're not necessarily familiar with theology of the theologian of the cross theologian of glory what does this mean well think with me a little further thus these two theologians having a different starting point human wisdom divine wisdom end up at different ending points truman helps here i think a little bit by looking at some terminology or some he he looks at words he says theologians whether of glory or the cross they use words to express their beliefs. For Luther, the conceptual content of these words needs to be defined by the act of God's revelation that takes place in Jesus Christ upon the cross. So he gives a few examples. The theologian of glory. Let's consider the word power. The word power. The theologian of glory will no doubt understand the word power when applied to God as referring to something analogous to a king's power. So he's trying to understand, how does God have power? He looks around, he says, well, who has power in the world? Kings have power. If you're writing this today, we might say, you know, presidents have power. Prime ministers have power. People in political power. And those kings exercise their power by way of imposition or coercion. Can you see where we're going to have a problem here? If I start with man's exercising power by way of coercion, by way of manipulation, by way of imposition, and I reason back to God, that's the way God exercises power. God exercises power by imposition. God exercises power by coercion. Is that true, though? Is that the way we ought to think of our God? The theologian of the cross, though, gives the word different content because power to him is there revealed in and through weakness. What is the cross? Paul says in Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is what? 
It is the power of God. The gospel, Romans chapter 1, is the power of God for salvation. The gospel, the message about how Christ comes, lives, dies, and is raised again. It's this picture of weakness and suffering, but it's power. Think of another word. Think of wisdom. The theologian of glory will understand wisdom in terms set by the world around him. Perhaps seeing it as intelligence or the knowledge of how to play the system. Wise people, they know how to manipulate things. They they know how to work the system to their own advantage. Man, he's wise. Man, what a smart guy. What an intelligent guy. The theologian of the cross, though, is different. He understands wisdom in terms of the incarnate God hanging weak and broken on a cross. A contradiction of all that the wise of the world around us would expect from the sovereign creator. Remember again, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To us who are being saved, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. But to the lost, to the Jew, and to the Greek, they see the preaching of the cross of Christ as what? Foolishness. It's weakness. It's not to be respected. It's not to be sought after. Think of another word. Righteousness. The theologian of glory will understand righteousness as some outward, visible quality constituted by good works. Somebody doing certain things. Oh, man, they're they're righteous. Look Look at that righteous man or that righteous woman. Oh, you've got such good kids. You ever had somebody say that to you? And your comment you want to come back with is, you want to come live with me for a couple of days? On second thought, don't do that. <laughs> Just keep thinking good things about me. You're righteous. The theologian of the cross, though, is different when it comes to righteousness. The theologian of the cross sees it in the one who is sinless, yet made sin for others. The one hanging on the cross, bearing the sins of men, is the righteous one. But the world assesses him. He must be guilty of something. I mean, he must have done something. Surely he's not really harmless, holy, undefiled, separated from sinners. He's getting his due. Think of two other words. Think of life and death. The theologian of glory sees life and death as an antithesis. And something to be avoided, especially that last one, death. But the theologian of the cross, Truman says, understands that death is actually the gateway to what? Life. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 2? I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives In me, in the life that I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ, but I live. (laughs) You see the the antithetical view there. The theologian of glory would say, that is just gobbledygook. That is just confusing. That is contradictory. Why do we say all this? Why do I have this 15-minute introduction to a sermon when I have far too much to cover? Because I want that to set a backdrop as we come back today to the book of Philippians. Because the congregation to which Paul writes, the one that we have been considering these weeks, the church in Philippi is in danger of succumbing to the messages of the theologians of glory. You're thinking, we've been here for a couple of weeks, and I've read this book, and I never saw a theologian of glory. Where are they? Well, they come in various shapes and sizes. Not heffalumps or woozles, but theologians. No Dr. Zeus readers here at all. we got to work on the new generation of children's literature. Okay. My wife is correcting me for something. What was that? It's Winnie the Pooh. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. I preach my own sermons and I write them until Janice rewrites them from the front rows. 
I wasn't looking up, but I bet that was Mary Jane clapping back there. Yes, Tom, thank you very much. All right. Well, they do come in various shapes and sizes, and Paul points them out in Philippians chapter 3 of his letter. Look over there for a moment with me. He calls them in chapter 3, in verse 2, he calls them dogs, evil workers, a false circumcision, those who put confidence in the flesh. Paul used to be among them himself, boasting in his own accomplishments. Look, for example, in chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6, Paul says that in verse 4, if anyone has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. If anyone is a theologian of glory, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecuted the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul had every Sunday school pen that could ever be earned. Paul had every merit badge that could ever be earned. Paul had a resume second to none. But now he prizes Christ. He now measures power and wisdom and righteousness by a new and different standard. He now esteems Christ above all. He wants, for example, in verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He has become a theologian of the cross. He, as Luther says, comprehends the visible and manifest things of God, but he sees them through suffering and he sees them through the cross. Other theologians of glory are found at the end of chapter 3 in verses 8 and 18 and 19. They are enemies of the cross. They set their minds on earthly things or earthly treasures. They have a God filling up their belly and they pursue a glory that is seen in their shameful doing of wicked deeds. Paul wants something better for the Philippians. He wants them to be theologians of the cross, and he calls them to, in embracing suffering and service here in the pursuit of true and everlasting joy, he calls them to wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see it there in verse 20? Rather than be like those theologians of glory in verses 18 and 19 who glory in their shame. He says, our citizenship is where it is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me read this differently. Verse 20, our citizenship is in glory. You see how glory is supposed to what? It's supposed to follow humiliation. That's the way it is for the Christian. Glory follows the cross. It's not the other way around. Thus, he writes to them for their joy to follow Christ's pattern. Humiliation, then glory. Well, this pattern is seen most clearly in the text that we have for today in Philippians chapter 2, in verses 6. To 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. See this picture, this pattern of humiliation, then glory in this brief text pointing us to Christ. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
the glory of God the Father. Now, our treatment of this text today will hardly be called an expository deep dive in the passage. I have been looking forward to this particular passage for several months, ever since we knew we were going to be doing this, and I, I've read I don't know how many things on Philippians chapter 2, and I've realized the closer we get to today, there is no way, there is no way to unpack all the depths of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11 in one sermon, nor do we necessarily need to. Because rather than trying to lay out a full exposition of the text, what I want to do today is, is merely illustrative. It's just, I want to paint a picture. That's, not, that's what Paul's doing here. Paul's not trying to give us, give us a, a full orb Christology. I mean, he does give us many wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is very God of very God. He empties himself, not in divesting himself of his glory, not in divesting himself of his deity. He doesn't quit being God when he comes into the world. He is very God of very God. But he assumes to himself that which he did not have before. He assumes to himself the fullness of a human nature, a human body, a human soul. He is man. He is for us and for our salvation. He assumes that which needs to be healed. And it is our humanity that needs to be healed. And he, as a full man, yet also fully God, comes into this world and in one person are united without confusion, without conflation, two human or human and divine, two natures, human and divine, in one person. We could, we could spend literally months unpacking the glorious Christology of the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, 6-11. But that was not Paul's primary intention. His intention here is to use Christ by way of an example to show the Philippians the kind of life that they are called to live. I want you to see how Paul uses this picture of the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus as a pattern of the kind of life that he calls us to live with one another. Three things I hope briefly to be able to do, and I'm, I'm going to hang these on three different terms. Recognize, repent, and renew. So for you note takers, recognize, repent, and renew. First, we need to simply recognize what it is here that Paul is doing with this presentation of the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. The Philippian church, though a good church, did have its problems. Now, the church in Philippi is not included in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches there of Asia Minor. Remember Ephesus and Sardis and Thyatira, Laodicea and others. But if we were to stick it in as an eighth church, we might say there were some things to commend about the Philippian church, but we would also say perhaps Jesus has some things against them. This church faced discouragement. It faced sorrow. It faced loneliness. It faced this, this feeling of being unloved or left alone. It was a hurting church in many ways. I take these five descriptors from chapter 2 in verse 1, notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now, Paul's not saying, sometimes the, the, the Greeks aren't using the word if here like we do. We'll often use the word like, you know, if you happen to get around to something, if this happens to happen. And we're like not sure that it's really happened. But we might even translate that little word if as since. Since there is encouragement in Christ. Since there is consolation of love. Since there is fellowship of the Spirit. Since there is affection. Since there is compassion. In other words, he's speaking here to the experience of the Philippian believers. And he's saying, I know in walking through this world, there is in Christ Jesus encouragement for the discouraged. And you've tasted of it. You've experienced it. 
You and I here today in Christ, each and every week, week in, week out. Ryan mentioned this morning, perhaps you're coming and you're full of joy. Perhaps you're coming and you're full of overwhelming discouragement. And if you're full of joy today, find your brothers and sisters who are full of discouragement and put your arm around them and uphold them. If you're full of discouragement, seek out one of your brothers that may be full of joy and say, would you pray for me? Would you, would you help me? The Christian life is something we all experience, and we all taste of discouragement. We all taste of sorrow. We all taste of loneliness. We all taste of failing to be loved. We all taste of hurt. But in Christ Jesus, in the Spirit of Christ, in union with Christ, all those wonderful things that are his are now made available to who? To us. And in Christ, there is encouragement. There is consolation. There is fellowship. There is affection. There is compassion. They had, the Philippians that is, to borrow from the writer of Hebrews, they had tasted deeply of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. In a salvific sense, they they knew Christ Jesus. They had been given hints of glory. They had been given tastes of that good age to come. But to be content with just hints and continue to bear the cross well is a difficult thing. Peter says in his first epistle, He says that when difficult times come upon you, when suffering comes, when persecution comes, he says, don't think it a what? Do you remember? A strange thing. You ever read that verse? It's quite fascinating to me that that I know that verse. I know that verse. I've, I've studied that verse. I've read it for years. I don't know how many times I've read 1 Peter. Yet it it just doesn't seem to matter. Every time something goes wrong in life, I have this little temptation in my head. Where'd that come from? I wasn't expecting that. I was doing good today. Did I do something wrong? This, This must be an oddity. It must be a strange thing. It's not strange. Your brothers and sisters all over this room are all going through different trials different difficulties, different burdens that they have to bear. And God, in his great mercy and his kindness, he does come to us in those moments, and he gives us encouragement. And it's like with John, he peels the heavens aside, not in some kind of visionary sense. Don't get all nervous. I know we're a few weeks away from the the, the merge. You're thinking, oh, great, he's a total heretic. No, I don't don't see visions, but, but, but God does come to us, and he reminds you of the joys that you have in Christ. He reminds you of the hope that you have of eternal life. He reminds you that this world is not your home. You are, in fact, like the hymn writer, just passing through, and heaven is my home, and if heaven's not my home, oh, Lord, what will I do? He gives us pictures of those those glimpses of the joys that await us in the future, and they encourage our hearts. He meets us along the weary road of life, and he encourages us along the way. But the vast experience of Christian men and women in this world is much like even non-Christian men and women of the world. We walk in a what? We walk in a fallen world, in fallen bodies. And our minds don't always think right. And the things in our life don't always go the way we think they should. And here are the Philippians. Paul teaches them in Philippians chapter 4 that he has learned how to be content in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret being filled of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and of suffering needs. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why does he tell them that? Because they need to know that. They need to know that. You're going to have struggle in this world. In fact, he says in the book of Acts, he tells those believers in the new church, the new churches that were found on the first missionary journey, he says, everyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven will, will have what? Tribulation. Jesus says it. In this world, you will have what? Tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Anybody have a trouble-free week? Don't raise your hand. That just shows you weren't listening. Nobody here had a trouble-free week. Nobody. You might be sitting there today thinking, oh man, nobody knows the troubles that I've seen. Remember that old sad song? 
Everybody in this room can probably understand to some extent the troubles that you've seen. Why? Because we all walk in a fallen world. We all struggle. And if we're not keeping that in mind, then when the theologians of glory come along, we're going to be what? We're going to be susceptible to that. When the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel people come around and say, look, gold in heaven, we don't want gold in heaven, we want gold now. You might think, would they really say something like that? Absolutely, they would say something like that. I remember about 20 years ago, hearing Benny Hinn actually declare, I don't want gold in heaven, I want my gold now. And if you'll just send money to me, you can have it too. The Philippians had been given hints of glory, but they needed to be content with hints and continue to bear the cross well. This, this was indeed what their Savior had done, and they were being called to that life as well. Philippians chapter 2, look there for a moment in verse 2. Make my joy, he says, complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in your minds, yourselves, which was also where? In Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that little snippet in verses 6 to 11 on the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ is presented to you so that you might see what it looks like to follow down that Via Dolorosa, that road of suffering. Because you and I, in Christ, are called to suffer well. I would love to tell you that tomorrow is going to be better than today. You ever talk to Somebody, and they say, oh, you know, I know you've had a hard day today, but that's okay. It's going to pass. Tomorrow's going to be better. You ever, you ever talk to people like that? Are you ever that kind of counselor? Don't be that kind of counselor. Don't put up with that kind of counsel. And please don't seek that kind of counsel out. Nor am I telling you that tomorrow's going to be horrible. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I'm following Christ, and he rules over every part of my life, and whatever he deems is best. And he has called me to a life that oftentimes will be filled with sorrow and suffering. Brothers, we not only need to recognize this paradigm of the Lord Jesus Christ as a paradigm for our life as well, we need to repent when we refuse to embrace it. Luther saw the cross, its possession, embracing it and its consequence as a distinguishing mark of the true church. About 20 years later, after the Heidelberg Disputation in 1539, Luther wrote a long treaty on the councils and the church in which he included, in one section, about ten pages or so, a list of the marks of a true church. Luther had been studying a little book known as the Children's Creed. And he said that the Children's Creed, this is from Luther, the Children's Creed teaches us that a Christian holy people is to be and remain on earth until the end of the world. This is an article of faith that cannot be terminated until that which it believes comes as Christ promises, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But how will or how can a poor, confused person tell where such Christian holy people are to be found in this world? Indeed, they are supposed to be in this life and on the earth, for they, of course, believe that a heavenly nature and an eternal life are to come, but as yet they do not possess them. Therefore, they must still be in this life and remain in this life and in this world until the end of the world. 
For they profess, Luther says, I believe in another life. Thereby, they confess that they have not yet arrived in the other life. But they believe in it. They hope for it. They love it as their true fatherland and life, while they must yet remain and tarry here in exile, as we sing in the hymn about the Holy Spirit, quote, as homeward we journey from this exile, Lord, have mercy. I don't know what hymn he's referring to. I haven't dug to find that, but that's a great line. As homeward we journey from this exile, Lord, have mercy. Brothers and sisters, that's a hymn for you to sing. As homeward we journey from this exile, Lord, have mercy. In this brief section of this larger work, he lists seven marks, seven distinguishing marks of the church. I thought, you know, we could probably write a book, The Seven Marks of a Healthy Church. Uh, It sounds like that title's almost been taken, but not quite. But the seven marks, I think, are great. The church is marked by the possession of the Word of God. The church is marked by the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. The church is marked by discipline, and he uses the language of the keys. It sounded like Ryan's Sunday school class for a minute. The church is marked by the ministry, the ministry of the word. The ministers are given to the church for the watch care of those first four things, the word of God, baptism, Lord's Supper, and discipline. Number six, he gives the church is is distinguished by its worship, and particularly for worship, he talks about prayer and praise. But the last mark, the last distinguishing mark that he lists of the church was the one that I wanted to kind of camp on for just a moment. The church is the place where you find the cross. The church is the place where you find the cross. And I, and I don't mean a relic of the cross. If you know anything about Luther and his diatribes against relics. We're not looking for a little piece of wood to say, this is the cross. No, he's talking about that the church is the place where you find those who bear the cross of Christ. You and I don't bear the cross of Christ in any kind of vicarious way, any kind of you know substitutionary way. We're not, we're not earning our way to heaven, but we do bear his cross to identify with him. We come to die to self and to live to Christ. You might recall the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century theologian, German man who died under Hitler. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to what? To come and die. Of this last mark of the church, the cross, the suffering of Christ, Luther makes this comment. He says, seventh, the holy Christian people are externally recognized by the holy possession of the sacred cross. And you can hear those Catholics in his day that were all the relic hunters getting, you know, excited and maybe salivating at the mouth a little bit. Oh, the church is the place for the sacred cross. That's not what he means. He says they must endure every misfortune and persecution, all kinds of trials and evil from the devil, the world, the flesh, as the Lord's prayer itself indicates, by inward sadness, timidity, fear, outward poverty, contempt, illness, and weakness in order to become like their head, Christ. And the only reason they must suffer is that they, the church, steadfastly adhere to Christ and God's word, enduring this for the sake of Christ. They must be pious, quiet, obedient, prepared to serve the government and everybody with life and goods, doing no one any harm. No people on earth have to endure such bitter hate. They must be accounted worse than the Jews, heathen, and Turks. In summary, they must be called heretics, knaves, and devils, the most pernicious of people on the earth, to the point where those who hang down, hang, drown, murder, torture, banish, and plague them to death are rendering God a service. No one has compassion on them. They are given myrrh and gall to drink when they thirst, and all of this is done not because they are adulterers or murderers or thieves or rogues, but because they want to have none but Christ and no other God. Wherever you see, Luther says, and hear this, 
you may know that the Holy Christian Church is there. As Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when men revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. This too is a holy possession, whereby the Holy Spirit not only sanctifies his people, but also blesses them. The world will not understand you when you seek to bear the cross of Christ. The world will not understand you when you seek to be a theologian of the cross and not a theologian of glory, but a theologian of the cross you must be. Sadly, though, in every one of us, that is, in every one of us, even those of us that are in Christ as theologians of the cross, dwells also a theologian of glory. Hear what I said? In each of us, And each of you, though you have identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and you seek to walk with him and you seek to suffer with him and you seek to say with Paul things like, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. Even though that is your profession and that is your affirmation and that is what you are pursuing within the breast of each and every one of us presides a theologian glory. How easily, how easily we can be drawn away. No sooner, no sooner do you embrace the suffering of Christ and you say, yes, Lord Jesus, I will pursue you above all things. I will suffer whatever I might need to do to be totally yours. No sooner have you said such things than what happens? You're tempted to doubt. You're tempted to wander. You're tempted to think, but I'd really love just a little more taste of glory. God, that would be great. I'd be happy with that. Our discontented heart raises its head. And we can be drawn away after the dogs, after the evil workers, after those who make their boasts in the flesh, those who glory in their shame and make worldly gods out of their bellies. We've already seen how Paul was pulled into this and how the Philippians were in danger of falling into it as well. Read this week in Matthew chapter 20, story of James and John. Let me just take you there for just a moment. Matthew chapter 20, we find James and John and their mother. Mm-hmm. Mama, here she is. Some of you know the story. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Actually, beginning back in verse 17, Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem, and he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock him, to scourge him, to crucify him, and on the third day he'll be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, don't you love how the gospel writers put their gospels together? Then the mother, in light of all that, Jesus... Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? We are able. Please. They feel pretty confident. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my Father. And hearing this, you can imagine, the ten others become what? Indignant with the two brothers. I can't believe them. Didn't they hear Jesus' message about suffering? Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's It's like almost a direct, it's the same thing Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 2. When presented with a theology of the cross, in verses 17 to 19, mother and boys seek to bypass it by adopting a theology of glory, verses 20 to 24, controverted by Christ, 
with a call to service in verses 25 to 28. Michael Horton once wrote in an old book I have by him, the theology of glory creates lords and masters, but the theology of the cross creates servants and friends. This is a temptation for each of us from which we must repent if we have succumbed. And I venture to say, we have all succumbed to it at one time or another. There's a wonderful story in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 45. Jeremiah the prophet, known as the weeping prophet for his sufferings, where many had, a, uh, had kind of a, a tonto, a sidekick, and his sidekick is Baruch. Baruch was the one who would write the book of Jeremiah. In fact, Baruch was the one who would write the book of Jeremiah twice, because when uh, Baruch took the, uh, took the first copy of Jeremiah to the king, the king sat there and tore off a piece and burned it and tore off a piece and burned it, and Baruch is devastated. We've got to rewrite the whole thing. And we're glad for that, in a sense, because we have a longer book of Jeremiah now uh, than we had at first, because Jeremiah added some things to it. But Baruch is distraught. Baruch was really hoping the king would hear, because if the king would hear, the kingdom would be saved, Jeremiah's position would be saved, Baruch's position would be saved, everything would be good, it would be great in Israel again. So Jeremiah says, in Jeremiah 45, in verse 1, it says, God is speaking to Jeremiah, says, this is the message which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch the son of Neriah, when he had written down these words in the book of Jeremiah's dictation in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel to you, O Baruch. You said, that is Baruch, you said, Ah, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning, and I've found no rest. Thus you, Jeremiah, are to say to him, Baruch. Thus says the Lord, Behold what I have built, I am about to tear down, and what I have planted I am about to uproot, and that is the whole land. But you, but you, Baruch, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. You gotta love the old King James on this. Thou seeking great things for themselves, thyself, seek them not. Seek them not. Friends, there is a little theologian of glory in each of us that needs to be put to death. If you're seeking great things for yourself, seek them Follow Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Who came to give his life for the good of the many. We need to recognize Christ. We need to repent where we have adopted the approach of a theologian of glory and not a theologian of the cross. And one final thing, we need to renew We need to renew our own commitment and our own heart to being theologians of the cross. Those who are willing to embrace the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ for the good of my brothers and sisters and, in essence, the the good of the world. How can I renew that? Well, Luther had a barber. Luther had a barber, Peter the barber. Peter the barber was discouraged once when Luther went to him. He was weighed down by the sufferings and the difficulties of the world, but he wasn't looking to Christ through them all. He was just looking at them. He was just discouraged and down in the dumps, if you will. And he says to Luther, when Luther comes to him to get his hair cut one day, he says, Brother Luther, you know, what, what do I do? I'm, 
I'm overwhelmed and discouraged by the things of the world. And here was Luther's response. Go to church. Go to church. And he actually told Peter, he said, you know, if you don't feel like singing, go to church and hear everybody else praising God. You don't feel like reading? Go to church and hear the word of God preached to you and let it wash over you and let it encourage you. And in that, it's going to reorient everything about your life. He simply said, go to church. Friends, if you're here today, you're, you're in the right place. Not because I'm special or because Ryan's special or anybody else is special. We are just weary pilgrims on a road that is difficult, but we are heading to a celestial city. And we will climb up the hill of difficulty. We will not be like those two friends that Christian met along the road and seek the roads of danger and destruction going around the hill of difficulty. No, we will go up the hill of difficulty because we know the way of life lies there. Friends, when you come to church, you hear the word of God preached. You hear the gospel preached. And what is the gospel? Paul lays it out as something of first importance to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, look, there's these two basic parts of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day. Beloved, what do we have there? We have a theology of the cross. He dies for our sins, and then he's raised on the third day after humiliation. Then what? Then glory. The preaching of the gospel of the death and the resurrection of Christ in that order points us to a theology of the cross and an expectation of future coming glory. We not only preach, we also pray. Think about the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives to the disciples there in Matthew chapter 6. It's a glorious theology of the cross. Listen to what it says. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, he says, Pray in this way, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where does that orient us? It orients us above. But then there's the check of the last part of the prayer. He says, Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the theology of the cross. I'm expecting and hoping for glory in the future, for the Lord to come, for his name to be hallowed, his kingdom to come, his will to be done. But in the meantime, I need to be fed, I need to be forgiven, and I need to be fought for by the Lord God. And you, friend, need to be fed every day. And what does God give you? He gives you daily bread. And you need to be forgiven. We all need the forgiveness of sins. And we all need someone to come and fight for us. Deliver us from evil. We need not only to have the word preached to us, we need not only to pray, we need to see in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper a theology of the cross that points us to glory. In baptism, what do we have? We have the visible picture of the death and the burial, the theology of the cross of Christ raised to newness of life. We have a pointing to that which is glorious. And at the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's Supper, we have bread that pictures his body. We have a cup that pictures his blood, and it's a glorious, dramatic presentation of the theology of the cross. But Jesus didn't leave it there. Jesus said this, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until. Did you hear that? Until. I drink it new with you in glory. Beloved, we need to be theologians of the cross. And we need to have an expectation and a hope of glory. You've come to the right place today to remember your Savior. Let's pray together. Our gracious and merciful God, we thank you
We bless you for your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless it to our hearts, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, impart these glorious lessons of the cross and of glory to our souls. Make us men and women, boys and girls, who hold the cross of Christ before us everywhere we go and know God and believe and affirm and confess that the cross is not the final word. Indeed, it is the word that if we embrace it, will lead us one day to glory. So God, we pray that you, for your glory and for our good, might press that to our souls today in Jesus' name.